Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today's Wednesday, November 1st, 2006. I'm Dr. Richard Savell. In the October 19, 2006 edition of the New England Journal of Medicine, a Perspectives article was published entitled Surviving Sepsis, Practice Guidelines, Marketing Campaigns, and Eli Lilly. The authors were Peter Eichacker, Charles Natanson, and Robert Danner from the NIH Critical Care Medicine Department. Today, Dr. Mitchell Levy will be joining us on the podcast to discuss this article. For most of us involved in the care of the critically ill patient, Dr. Levy requires little introduction. But nevertheless, Dr. Levy is professor of medicine at Brown Medical School. At Rhode Island Hospital, he's the director of critical care services and medical director of the medical intensive care unit. He is a founding member and a member of the executive committee of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. And he is also one of the lead investigators of the VARIC Task Force, Values, Ethics, and Rationing in Critical Care. He's a member of the executive committee of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and a former chair of the critical care section of the American College of Chest Physicians. Thank you so much, Dr. Levy, for joining us on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here, Rich. As we discussed previously, the plan for today's interview is for me to uh, uh, quote various sections from this manuscript and provide you an opportunity for discussion of some of the uh, various issues raised in each of the sections. And so I'd just like to get right into it. In the beginning of the article, uh, they state, Unfortunately, the development of such clusters, the bundles of performance uh, measurement, is vulnerable to manipulation for inappropriate and possibly harmful ends. Seeing in these bundles a potentially powerful vehicle for promoting their products, pharmaceutical and medical device companies have begun to invest in influencing the adoption of guidelines that serve their own financial goals. A case in point is the development of guidelines for the treatment of sepsis, which was orchestrated as an extension of a pharmaceutical marketing campaign. Although its advocates viewed this effort as an important approach to reducing sepsis-related mortality, the campaign appears to have usurped guideline development for commercial purposes, possibly compromising highly regarded third-party arbiters of medical quality in the process. Such intrusion into an initiative to benefit public health is of particular concern in this instance since the drug incorporated into the performance measures was endorsed on the basis of a single, controversial Phase three trial that was still being called into question even as the committee did its work. First, Rich, let me say uh, that the Surviving Sepsis Campaign is actually quite grateful to the authors for raising the issues that they did in the manuscript that was published in the New England Journal. For us, it's been clear for a while that these issues have been present from the beginning. That is the question of industry involvement in guidelines and to what extent that 
creates bias in the guidelines. The role of industry as partners with professional societies altogether uh, on various efforts, including educational efforts. And finally, on the role of industry in facilitating knowledge transfer and the implementation of guidelines. So these topics are not new to this process, and they certainly have been made clear long before this manuscript was published. But unfortunately, most of the discussion happened in hallways and was whispered, and so their manuscript and the publication of their manuscript finally brings a very important conversation and debate out into the public eye, and one that really we welcome as a campaign. And in fact, uh, I would say that we initiated this by our transparency from the very beginning uh, with the process. We were clear about where the industry funding was and have uh, already published an industry fact sheet on our website. So we welcome uh, the opportunity to have this discussion, and we're really grateful to the authors. In terms of the paragraph and beginning of the manuscript and talking about the possibility that bundle technology and the product of bundle technology, which is changing clinical practice, can be co-opted by market forces with uh, the representation from pharmaceutical companies. It's obviously, I think, an important concern and one worth talking about. We think that in the effort of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, we have been transparent, as I said before, from the beginning about the involvement of industry. Uh, the involvement of industry in the campaign has been to fund the implementation of the guidelines, but industry has never in any way been, been involved in the development of guidelines. And this is a really important point. And as you can see in the paragraph you just read, the authors rely on a certain style throughout the manuscript that is a very interesting style in that they don't mention any absolute inaccuracies but rely instead on slight distortion and innuendo to make their point, which makes it somewhat more difficult to understand and respond to. So, for instance, in the question of whether the development of guidelines for the treatment of sepsis was orchestrated as an extension of pharmaceutical marketing campaign, well, that's an interesting question. There is no question that one pharmaceutical company and probably several have products which they would like to see marketed to critical care physicians and have their sales increased. So would they be interested in funding an initiative that is creates guidelines based on an evaluation of the literature? Of course they would, especially if their interventions have been shown in well-done randomized controlled trials to improve survival which is the case for two of the sponsors of the campaign, that is the Eli Lilly Company and, and the Edwards Life Sciences Company. Uh, activated Protein C, uh, which is marketed under the name of Zygris, and early goal-directed therapy are two interventions which have been shown in randomized controlled trials, both published in the New England Journal of Medicine, to improve survival for septic patients. Uh, the, the campaign started as a, a global initiative to, to assist knowledge transfer. The campaign was funded 
by Eli Lilly and Edwards Life Sciences, and it is one of those opportunities, one of those times when the agenda of a pharmaceutical house, that is to see the their sales increase in part, and the agenda of both professional societies and individual clinicians, that is as patient advocates, to see high-quality research be brought to the bedside actually dovetailed, which creates the environment in which a partnership between industry and professional societies may be beneficial. All right. Well, let's um, let's keep the discussion going. You're raising uh, important points, and I, I believe there will be many more. Um, uh, to improve sales of recombinant human-activated protein C, in 2002, Lilly hired Belsito and Company, a public relations firm, to develop and help implement a three-pronged marketing strategy. First, the product sales were to be supported by marketing initiatives targeted to physicians and the medical trade media. Second, because recombinant human-activated protein C was relatively expensive, word would be spread that the drug was being rationed and physicians were being, quote, systematically forced, unquote, to decide who would live and who would die. As part of this effort, Lilly provided a group of physicians and bioethicists with a $1.8 million grant to form the VARIC Task Force, Values, Ethics, and Rationing in Critical Care, purportedly to address ethical issues raised by rationing in the intensive care unit. Finally, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign was established, in theory, to raise awareness of severe sepsis and generate momentum toward the development of treatment guidelines. So this is an example of a actual factual inaccuracy that's contained in the manuscript. I don't know when Lilly hired Belsito and company, but I can tell you that this entire paragraph is based on a claim on a public relations website that seems to tie together both Varick, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, and another initiative as, a, as an overall grand marketing scheme of Lilly Company orchestrated by Belfito. Now, my current understanding is that website of the public relations now has a disclaimer on it that says that it cannot verify the accuracy of this report. Belsito and company are no longer in business. It, there is no one to affirm or deny the truth of what's being claimed by Belsito on this website. And now the public relations, um, I guess, organization is, has a disclaimer to that effect. First, for the surviving sepsis campaign, we actually didn't hire Belsito to work with us until approximately 18 months after we were started. We were working with a different public relations firm, and Belsito came along later. So Belsito could not possibly have been involved in any kind of initial marketing grand strategy that involved the surviving sepsis campaign. Second, the Value Ethics and Rationing and Critical Care Task Force, which I chaired, was an independent task force funded by an unrestricted educational grant by the Eli Lilly Company. That task force was established in part because Eli Lilly came to myself and one of my junior investigators at Brown, who, after we published a survey identifying the presence of rationing, or I should say the perception of rationing amongst critical care physicians, which was we published in uh, Critical Connections, the magazine of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Once we published that survey, Lily did come to us and say, we'd be interested, if you're interested, in um, pursuing a 
rationing task force. Uh, our response to Lilly was this rationing task force had to be completely independent, and in fact, the scope of Eric had to go way beyond anything to do with a single agent, but had to look at the issue of rationing altogether in critical care. Over the next four years, first, an oversight committee was established at Brown University and Rhode Island Hospital to oversee and uh, adjudicate any potential conflict of interest uh, between the activities of the Varick Task Force and uh, any any conflict of interest, as I said, with uh, Eli Lilly Company or their products. No conflict of interest over the three years of the Varick Task Force were found. And in fact, we have several publications and several products as a result of the task force, the most important and revealing of which is a manuscript that is currently in submission at the New England Journal, which is a survey of ICU nursing and physician directors, which in fact show that the perception amongst ICU physician and nursing directors is that there is no rationing in the United States. And in fact, the greater concern that was raised by this study was the commonplace presence of excessive care in intensive care units. So in fact, this study, which is, as I said, under review in the New England Journal, refutes any notion that the Varick Task Force is influenced by industry because the findings demonstrate exactly the opposite of what is claimed to be the purpose of the Varick Task Force in the manuscript. One of the next uh, points I wanted to bring up was a was an interesting paragraph that I'd be very interested in your in your thoughts on. Campaign participants might argue that regardless of Lilly's concerted efforts, the guidelines were not influenced by the company and represent best practice based on the evidence that was available, largely from randomized controlled trials. Although such trials represent the gold standard of medical evidence, over-reliance on them in the construction of guidelines has a tendency to favor new drugs and devices, which typically undergo at least one trial in order to obtain government approval. So this is a fascinating issue, and again, reflective of the style of the manuscript, which tends to distort the truth, but is not actually, is not truly factually inaccurate. By that, I mean the following. The guideline ranking system that we used in 2004 was the Sackett, David Sackett Evidence-Based Medicine Ranking System. That's the ranking system for evidence that was prevalent in 2004, was the official ranking system of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and many other critical care societies. It was a ranking system of evidence that was based on the work of Deborah Cook and David Sackett and Gordon Guyatt and others who were instrumental in the field of evidence-based medicine. The fact that evidence-based medicine places great weight on randomized controlled trials is accurate. And in fact, it's an attempt by the advocates of evidence-based medicine, which has been accepted widely, I should say, in, in medicine in general as one of, if not the most important approach to understanding the literature and applying the literature to daily practice. The randomized controlled trial has become the gold standard of how to evaluate the evidence and how to use the evidence at the bedside. So implying that the ranking system gives too much weight to randomized controlled trials, while it's actually true, this is in fact what many, if not most clinicians believe is the gold standard for any kind of research that might be brought 
to clinical practice for patients. So therefore, the ranking system we used was not developed by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign in any way. In fact, we simply used the prevalent ranking system at the time, which was the SACIT evidence-based medicine ranking system. It is true that randomized controlled trials tend to point clinicians away from older therapies like antibiotics, which have never been exposed to randomized controlled trials. No one would be able to do an ethical trial, randomized controlled trial, for patients with infections of whether or not antibiotics should be used. So in the SACIT ranking system, it is impossible to give the same level of recommendation to an antibiotic as it is to a newer randomized controlled trial. However, the key, which is somehow omitted in this manuscript, and this is really a key for the campaign altogether, it's about bundles, the use of bundle or bundle technology as opposed to guidelines. One of the reasons we partnered with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement <clears throat> is the, was the recognition on the part of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign that guidelines, for the most part, go unused. Guideline, guidelines get unused because there is no good way to bring them to the bedside. And so the Institute for Healthcare Improvement has been instrumental in developing techniques for taking guidelines and allowing or facilitating their transfer to the bedside. And what, what's done is the development of bundles. What bundles do is they take individual aspects of recommendations in the guidelines and they bundle them together in a way that makes it easier to do at the bedside and easier to measure. The point here is once an element gets into the bundle, it has equal weight for each element of the bundle. And if you look in the surviving sepsis campaign, fluids, aggressive fluid resuscitation, blood cultures, antibiotics had equal weight to the newer interventions that are criticized as industry-influenced by the manuscripts, such as activated protein C or early goal-directed therapy. So therefore, we in the campaign, recognizing the importance of antibiotics, of fluids, put these bundles together so that they would all have equal weight in facilitating knowledge transfer and improving the care of patients. This fact seems to be conveniently left out of the manuscript, and in fact, the opposite is implied. That is, that we give more weight only to the things of randomized controlled trials rather than established therapies such as antibiotics, when in fact, Bundle technology allows us to merge these recommendations, some of which are based on randomized controlled trials, some of which aren't, into a single bundle and therefore carries the same weight at the bedside. All right, let me make a, another uh, important point that was discussed here, and they talk about some of the imbalances, and they say this imbalance is made more troubling by the campaign's failure to discuss persistent concerns about uh, recombinant human-activated protein C, which has been reinforced by recent trials. Although the results of the ADDRESS study uh, were reported at the October 2004 European Society for Intensive Care Medicine meeting, no mention of the study was included in a supplement to the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, published the following month in Critical Care Medicine. Moreover, the efficacy of recombinant human-activated protein C has not been prospectively demonstrated in the patient population for which the drug is currently recommended. 
Well, this raises a very important issue, and and one that really requires several levels of clarification. First, let me talk about activated protein C, and let me talk about it by actually pointing at the fact that there were 48 recommendations in the guidelines in 2004, and there are 11 bundle elements in in both bundles, the resuscitation bundle and the management bundle. Only one recommendation out of the 48, and only one element out of the 11 is associated with activated protein C. And yet the authors seem to conveniently ignore all the other recommendations and all the other bundle elements and are focused on activated protein C. Now, I have to wonder out loud whether their publication track record may be influencing this. If you look at the publications of uh, Dr. Zykacker and Nathanson over the last four years, a full 70 to 80 percent of their publications, in fact, are involved with criticisms of either activated protein C or the ARDSNET data. So, in fact, there's a tremendous amount of investment here on the part of the authors in proving the point that activated protein C is, is an ineffective agent. However, the fact is, it is a licensed agent. The FDA did approve licensing. Over the subsequent years, as new trials have come out, The FDA has not done anything to take this drug off the market. In fact, quite the opposite. Clinicians are using the agent. No increased adverse events are being reported. And so in clinical practice, this agent, this therapeutic agent is being used. What we are trying to do in the campaign is provide guidance for the clinician on how to use an agent that has a certain side effect profile and for which there are a lot of data. If you look at what we recommend in the bundles, we do not mandate the use of activated protein C. This is a very important point, and it's one that I think the authors, and I've heard them speak in public, often not only ignore but seem to distort slightly. And that is, we do not in the campaign, either in the recommendations or the bundles, mandate the use of activated protein C. Quite the contrary, what we recommend, or mandate, if you will, is that hospitals develop individual policies for using the agent and then demonstrate that the agent was thought of and compared to the local hospital policy and used or not used according to the local hospital policy. So the point is, what we're really mandating is for clinicians to make their own decisions about how and whether to use this agent. And so in the bundles and the data collection piece, if the local hospital policy is never use this agent, and I can tell you, for instance, in Brazil, the agent's not licensed, then that hospital would be 100% compliant with that bundle element because it's consistent with their hospital policy. So we are simply saying to clinicians, read the literature, look at the literature, think about it for yourself, and make a hospital policy, and then apply that hospital policy on a regular and consistent basis. From the campaign's point of view, this is helping guide the clinicians to think about, assess the literature, and make their own decision. And it's a responsible thing to do with an expensive agent that has been proven efficacious for the management of severe sepsis and septic shock. The next talking point is referring to which uh, societies uh, help to sponsor the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, and uh, I'm just going to quote here again. Eleven professional societies are cited as sponsors of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. 
The Infectious Diseases Society of America, IDSA, however, declined to endorse them. This organization found fault with the manner in which the guidelines were developed, the use of a suboptimal rating system, and their sponsorship by a drug company. But in this case, even the fact that the society decided not to endorse the recommendation is not widely known. According to Dante L. Landucci, an intensivist at East Carolina University, Critical Care Medicine, which published the guidelines, removed mention of the IDSA's rejection from his invited editorial on the subject that appeared in print three months after the guidelines did. So this is a fascinating example of the kinds of issues that have been raised by this whole process. And that is the difference between industry bias and academic bias. And I think that we will all, professional societies, individual clinicians, the lay public will be talking about this particular issue more and more over the next few years. Because right now, in public, in the, in the public domain, I should say, the concept of any industry influence on anything is seen as evil. It's basically thought of that anything tainted by industry is biased and therefore has no credibility. What goes unspoken is something that I think is equally fraught with bias, and that is academics who have their own personal intellectual bias against or for different approaches in medicine. Many would argue that intellectual or academic bias is even more worrisome because it's more insidious and more difficult to identify. And this Infectious Disease Society of America piece part is actually a good reflection of that. The 11 professional societies were sponsors of the campaign. Rather than noting that 11 societies in critical care and infectious disease across the world came together for the first time in a historic partnership to partner with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, only the IDSA is mentioned. And in addition, what's fail, what the authors fail to mention is the IDSA initially endorsed them. And as the publication was being prepared, their name was in fact on the masthead. And only after the guidelines committee objected to the way the, to the ranking system was IDSA taken off. Now it's interesting because as I said, the ranking system we used was the standard of care or the standard ranking system at the time. The IDSA ranking system, which gives equal weight to different kinds of trials, was not the most commonly used ranking system at the time, but it is a ranking system that would allow antibiotics to have equal weight to randomized controlled trial. trials. Now, that's an interesting conflict of interest or element of bias for an infectious disease society to have since it allows their recommendations to put very strong weight on antibiotics which are not founded in randomized controlled trials. I'm not implying that's bad. I'm simply noting that it's interesting how a ranking system would be adopted by a society which benefits the, let's say, products of that society in, in uh, the public domain. In addition, my understanding is that the Guidelines Committee at that time was chaired by a member of the division from the author's division which raises the conflict, really, of academic bias in the whole process. So this entire 
section, I think, is a really good example of the kind of issues that we will struggle with for a long time, which is trying to decide on how bias, whether it's academic and intellectual or conflict of interest, uh, conflict of interest arising from industry, affects guideline production and knowledge transfer. Without question, in an ideal sense, I think it would be best for no industry involvement in the production of guidelines or even facilitating guideline transfer. However, assuming that any industry involvement leads to bias which affects the guidelines, I think is an oversimplification of the guideline process. We in the campaign had a transparent process from the beginning in which no member of industry was ever allowed to be at the table during the guidelines process. When we had the original guidelines panel, none of the authors who were on the original manuscripts for each recommendation were permitted to take part in the, in the recommendations from the guidelines. And industry was never sent any advance notice of the manuscripts, was never privy to any of the publication before it was before the guidelines were published. And so our attempt was to be not only as transparent as possible, but to free the process entirely of any potential conflict of interest. We think we did an outstanding job of making these guidelines from 2004 completely free from industry bias. What I'd like to do to uh, conclude is I'm going to read uh, one more paragraph, and I know you've addressed some of the issues, but perhaps if you'd like to take this last talking point that I read and maybe uh, make some concluding points about, uh, about your perspective on this perspective article in the New England Journal of Medicine. Implementation of the bundles is being advocated nationally in workshops organized under the auspices of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and funded by Lilly. In addition, the company funds Advances in Sepsis, a widely distributed periodical that publicizes the campaign. These activities continue unabated amid increasing calls for a new prospective study of recombinant human activated protein C. And the authors conclude by stating, the challenges involved in producing first-rate guidelines and performance standards are only exacerbated by the intrusion of marketing strategies masquerading as evidence-based medicine. Dr. Levy, if you'd like to conclude. Well, once again, I think that this is a great example of the academic uh, bias that we've been talking about. What's real, there are a few things. One, what's really worth noting is that in the same, very same issue of the New England Journal in which the, the piece by Eichecker and Natanson was published, there was a review article on the management of sepsis by Jim Russell from Vancouver. And in fact, in that review article, activated protein C is recommended in exactly the same way that we recommend as the guidelines. So the authors in the manuscript imply that it's because of our connection to Lilly that activated protein C is being recommended, and there is this huge outcry for another prospective study of activated protein C, when in fact even in its in the journal in which their piece was published as a a review article activated protein C is being recommended so the implication that our recommendation of activated protein C has been somehow affected by Lilly doesn't seem to conform with the recommendations that are appearing everywhere in the literature for using an agent that is licensed and has been shown by a randomized control trial to improve survival but i think it points to a bigger issue, and that is the 
challenges involved in producing first-rate guidelines and performance standards. According to the authors, they are exacerbated by the intrusion of marketing strategies masquerading as evidence-based medicine. We believe in the campaign that we established a process which has been mimicked many times for producing guidelines. That is, setting a panel up, culling from the experts in the field, and assigning them before the meeting to review the literature and using a traditional, generally accepted, evidence-based strategy for ranking the evidence. Out of that, recommendations were gleaned via consensus from the experts in the field. We stand by the process that was used to develop the guidelines in 2004. We think they were free from industry bias. They were based on solid evaluation of the literature and that the conclusions and the recommendations stand for themselves and speak for themselves. And I will say, even more importantly, I think the data speaks for themselves. We now have data as a preliminary analysis in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign database that shows in the first 2,000 patients who were entered in the database that patients who were compliant with both the resuscitation bundle and the management bundle had a mortality rate of 26, 25% compared to a mortality rate in patients who were non-compliant with either of the two bundles. That's a 29% reduction in mortality. In 2002, when we established a campaign in Barcelona at the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine meetings, we said that over the next five to eight years, we would achieve a 25% reduction in mortality by the use of bundles that direct care for patients with severe sepsis and septic shock. We feel strongly not only do we believe in the integrity of the process of the campaign, but we think that results speak for themselves. We have achieved to date a 29% risk reduction, reduction in mortality for patients, not just in North America, not just in one hospital, but in fact across several hospitals, several states in North America, and in Europe. We look forward to the campaign continuing and continuing to demonstrate improved survival for these critically ill patients with severe sepsis and septic shock. We remain proud of the work of the campaign, and we look forward to it continuing. We've been speaking today with Dr. Mitchell Levy. He's professor of medicine at Brown Medical School. Thank you so much, Dr. Levy, for joining us today. My pleasure. This concludes our podcast for Wednesday, November 1st, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Register now for the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress to be held in Orlando, Florida, USA, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Connect with your colleagues and gain a multi-professional perspective on clinical topics relevant to your daily ICU environment by attending the various cutting-edge sessions, hands-on workshops, informative symposia, and exciting social engagements. 
Don't miss the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Register today by speaking with an SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or by visiting www.sccm.org.